on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you are listening to us for the very first time here at 88.7 or through the internet. And so for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions as they have been studying God's word and they're maybe not sure as to the meaning or the application of a passage or maybe some personal challenge or event in your life or marriage or home. If we can help, we'll do our best by God's grace and his mercy, all you have to do is pick up the phone, call us locally, 843-525-1859. For those listening through the internet, if you want to use our toll-free number, it's 877, the call letters, WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly right into the studio, and the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. As always, Rick, it's great to be here today. Uh, and let's go ahead and we'll jump right in and we'll get started. All right, Pastor, we've got a number of uh, questions and uh, we actually had a visitor stop by the radio station and uh, they dropped off this question on Romans 8, 26 and 27, specifically verse 27. This listener has heard your sermons and has read numerous books by Tory Spurgeon, uh, Murray McShane and others on prayer. Uh, is it possible that while the Spirit is praying within me, this person writes, he could be praying something different from what I am verbalizing? Or as I seek him to lead me in prayer, will he impart and illumine God's will to me so that my prayers become one with his prayers and that I'm merely the mouthpiece of what he is praying? I have to believe that in order to claim such a powerful promise at 1 John 5, 24, um, that... First John 5, five, if we pray anything according to his will, right. he hears us, yes. That I can know what God's will is, and I can only come to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit, as I seek him, as to how to pray, will tell me, uh, as Jeremiah 33, 3 says. Thank you. Well, let me read out Romans eight twenty six. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Yes, I did a preach on this very verse um, as we went through the book of Romans. And sometimes we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. You know, I remember many years ago, I was at Dallas Seminary and there was a speaker who came to the chapel and his uh, little nine-year-old boy kept asking him for a go-kart and finally on his 10th birthday he gave in and he gave his son a a go-kart 
And within a week, unfortunately, that little guy ran out into the street with it, and um, he was run over by a car, and he was killed. And I remember him saying that, you know, sometimes we ask our father for something, and we think that as dads, we're giving them the very best that we think would be of help to them or be a blessing to them. But sometimes uh, we ask for things as children and we don't ask really as we ought to ask. And sometimes we're asking God for something and what we're really asking him for is a go-kart that we don't need to have. And we don't know that, but the spirit of God knows that. And so, yes, there are times when you definitively know what God's will is and you can stand on a passage like 1 John 5 where it says, and the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. This life isn't his son. And then he'll go on to give a, a fantastic promise in prayer. And it's a promise that when you know you're in God's will, you don't have to doubt whether or not God is going to answer that prayer because definitively he tells us that he will. He uh, says, and then in the next verse, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, Remember, we just read in Romans 8 that he intercedes for us according to the will of God. Sometimes we don't have to wonder what the will of God is. Like if you're asking this week for an opportunity for God to give you uh, a chance to share the gospel with someone, for an open door of opportunity, and that when that open door comes that God will give you clarity. That would be a good thing to ask for. By the way, that's something the Apostle Paul asked the Colossians to pray for him about, the great apostle, the great theologian, even for clarity in presenting the gospel. Why? Because the Spirit of God mixes spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, and you need a certain uh, ump that only the Spirit of God can give you when you share your faith, and you need to, to see opportunities that you don't want to miss. And so sometimes, you know, you're in a situation, we um, always share more recently on the first uh, Tuesday of the month, we just had staff meeting and we share about opportunities maybe that God has given us recently. And I had a man who brought out some bales of pine straw and I've actually known him for like 20 years and I've talked to him before. Uh, his son is a born again Christian. I met him on one occasion and said, dad, you know, he's a, he's a Cherokee Indian and he, you know, has all this stuff hanging from his mirror and he does all these feathers and stuff to ward off evil spirits and, you know, just bad stuff. And, you know, pray for my dad, pray for my dad. And, and I've kind of built a relationship with this guy and he's now in his early eighties. And, and for the first time I saw just an open door in his heart and he began to tell me that he wasn't feeling well. He's consistently feeling bad. He's getting weaker and he was afraid he was going to die. So there was my open door. That was an answer to prayer. God, give me an opportunity to share Christ with someone today. So sometimes you know definitively what the will of God is, and you can stand on 1 John five fourteen and 15. And this is the confidence we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So if I'm praying, God, give me an open door. Is that the will of God? Yes, God commands me uh, by the example of the apostle Paul who can say, follow me as I follow Christ there in Colossians chapter four to pray for that very thing. A lot of Christians don't pray for that. 
because they don't think it's their responsibility. They think, well, that's what we pay pastors and missionaries to do, to share the gospel for us. Look, I need to lead by example as a pastor, but I can't win people to Christ that God wants to use you to win. And then the second half of the promise is, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, then we know that we have the request that we've asked from him. So when you know something's definitively in the will of God, but sometimes you don't know, obviously God's will never contradicts his word, but sometimes you're praying, oh, should I go to USC, uh, Columbia, or should I go to Clemson University? I get accepted in both. Well, you might think that the ideal would be um, Clemson, <laughs> and uh, Rick shakes his head, no, he's a USC graduate, and God wants you to go to USC to root for the game, not to root for the Gamecocks, but maybe to build you spiritually. But you're saying, oh, God, open that door for Clemson, and then you get accepted to both, and you know, God intercedes for us according to the will of God, because he sees a, a bigger plan, a bigger picture, and he has a way of orchestrating circumstances and giving confirmation and things that are not necessarily moral issues, but God in his wisdom dictates for us. So you don't always know the will of God. And so sometimes you pray if the Lord wills, because you don't know. Uh, Now, if he does will something, then you don't have to pray with that loose confidence. You can pray with absolute authority. But even if the Lord wills, there's a sense of assurance because when I don't know how to pray as I ought, the spirit intercedes on my behalf for me. So those are some really great promises in prayer that we need to take hold of and trust God with. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and, uh, Actually, we had last week off. Otherwise, this would have been the appropriate time to have asked it. But you did just preach on this. Uh, So uh, this person writes, when you cover Revelation 13, can you discuss this? My Christian friends from India think 666 is wrong in all the English translations. And it's actually some Muslim thing. The theory is about Middle East languages like Arabic or Hebrew symbols that they think John actually saw. Well, um, I'm only cracked the door in Revelation 13. I've done two messages. I'm planning to do five messages just in that one chapter. And it's a very critical chapter in God's word because it tells us of the beast uh, from the sea, namely the Antichrist. And it also tells us the beast from the earth, which is his false prophet and how these two will Uh, intersect along with the dragon forming really an unholy trinity. But the Muslims, of course, love to attack the word of God. And so while Muslims are a minority in India, um, only about 10%, most most people in India are Hindu. They make up about 90%. Actually, Muslims are only about 7 or 8%. And then the last remaining are Jainism and Sikh and a small, small minority of born-again Christians. With that said, the Muslims love to attack the Bible, and they have apologists that do that. One guy named Shubat, who's pretty famous, and he attacks American Christianity all the time. And, And so he argues from the number 666 based on examining what's called the Codex Vaticanus, Greek text. I am 
which is not a bad translation. Uh, it's not a bad, you know, copy of scripture. It's not as old as some of the manuscripts we have, but it doesn't make any difference. The three letters that are there, Chi, 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 uh, and Sigma, three Greek letters uh, that uh, we spell as 666. Understand that in Greek, every single letter has a numerical equivalent. So like alpha, for instance, is the letter, the, the number one and so forth, all the way through the alphabet. And then when you combine things, kind of like with Roman numerals, if you put the number one in front of the, um, the Roman numeral one in front of X, it's, it's nine. And you can do the same thing with Greek. And so we come up with this number 666, which is the number of his name, meaning you could take the Antichrist name and it will add up to 666. With that said, and there's a whole lot behind that, and I will cover that, The um, some Muslim apologists who love to attack Christianity, they say that those three Greek letters, uh, Chi, Chi, and Sigma, look like three Arabic letters, and that uh, it actually forms the word Allah and just just a lot of crazy stuff. And you can play all kinds of gymnastics with the number 666. And we'll discuss that a little bit later when we continue our work through the Revelation. But understand the Greek New Testament is crystal clear that God says the number of Antichrist's name is 666. It's very clear that no one will be able to buy or sell anything without uh, indeed taking the mark of the beast. But if you want to go into other languages and do gymnastics with it, and here this guy is entering into Arabic, just like people go into Latin, and they argue from the letters that are on the Pope's crown, and they do a lot of, you know, again, uh, arithmetic gymnastics to make the Pope's crown say 666. You know, you can't do that because the language that God is speaking of is Greek when he makes his argument. And so, listen, your your, your friend from India uh, has really a moot point. And so you need to back up and you need to really ask, how do we know the scriptures are authoritative? How do we know that we can trust what the scriptures are saying? Because that, in essence, or what the, what is he doing? He's attacking the authority of scripture, and, and he's saying, well, this is just some crazy Christian thing. And, you know, and the Muslims argue from Arabic that it doesn't mean that. And, well, again, the question becomes, are the scriptures fully inspired right down to the smallest jot and tittle, as Jesus said, right down to the tense of the verb, right down to the difference between a plural noun and a singular noun. And the answer is yes. So you back up and you argue from that perspective, the authority of the scripture. And then it doesn't matter what someone says from some other religion and attacking the Bible. God's word internally has proven itself to be his authoritative word. And I have a booklet on that, how to prove the Bible is true that I've written. You can get that at searchthescriptures.org. It might be very, very helpful to you. Very good. Uh, Well, we just had a call and the person dictated their question. They would like you to please explain Exodus 32.32. Was Moses talking about the book of life? Okay, so let me go there for just a second. Uh, It's an interesting question. It comes up every once in a while on the Bible line. And it's a fair question because you need to discern in your in your thinking what books, so to speak, are in God's library. 
So on the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin. Now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. Then the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you, behold, my angel in reference to the angel of the Lord shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf, which Aaron had made. So understand there are different books of life. And I think the common mistake to make here from Deuteronomy 32, 32 is to assume that this is the same book as the Lamb's book of life, which is also called the book of life in Revelation 13, Revelation 17. And and if you've been with us in our study of uh, Revelation, we've already covered the third chapter where God makes a promise never to blot someone's name out of the book of life. So the book of life is the names of all of the saved people that God wrote before the foundations of the world, because in his omniscience, he knew who would be saved, but it's a very different book from the book of the living. And that's really what Moses is referencing here, much like in Deuteronomy chapter 29. And so Moses is saying, look, God, you know, I I just rather have you take my life than to lead such a rebellious people that bring such disdain and horror in uh, such a poor testimony to your name. That's how much Moses loved the Lord. This man just passionately loved God. And God said, no, I'm not going to eliminate you, Moses, and I'm not going to take you uh, at your request, but I'm going to deal with the people who have rebelled against me. And God did just that. And 3,000 men of the people fell that day. And so God smote them from the book of life. Remember the days that were written for us before there were yet one, Psalm 139, were all written in his book. That's the book of life. It tells you basically how many days you will live. So God in his omniscience sees the front and the behind and, and he, he can record that. And sometimes God, of course, sees our rebellion. And by the way, there is still a certain death sentence that comes on even believers under the new covenant for rebelling against God. And Paul reminds us of that in first Corinthians chapter 11, he's dealing with people who had abused the Lord's table. They were taking the very elements that were a reminder that they were not their own, that they'd been bought with a price and they came with sin in their hearts, rebellion, some even drunk at the Lord's table. Can you imagine? And so he said, because they refused to judge the body rightly, meaning to evaluate your spiritual condition, which is what we're supposed to do when we come to the Lord's table. He'll say, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And so because they refuse to do that, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That is a number have died. So God took some out of the book of life. He shortened their days 
Of course, he knew in eternity past that they were going to do this. But nonetheless, they could have lived longer than they might have had it not been for their rebellion. Paul tells us the same principle in Ephesians 6, where he exhorts children to obey their obey and honor their parents. And then he reminds us that this is the first commandment with a promise. The first commandment in the Decalogue that has a promise attached to it that they might live long on the earth. Deuteronomy 29 is a whole uh, chapter that really illustrates this very thing. And God exhorts the people when they, you know, are standing on two mountains and they give uh, the blessings at Mount Gerasim and and they're at the shoulder blade, so to speak, on, on that plain. Uh, they they go back and forth, and, and God warns them, choose life. And, and if you don't choose life, if you choose to disobey me, you're going to, in essence, remove yourself from the Lord's book of life because of your, your, your disobedience. So it's the same principle brought out in those two chapters, Deuteronomy 28 and 29. Great question uh, that has just been called in. And if you have a question you want to call in, you can. The lo- number locally is 843 843- Five two five eighteen fifty nine, or you can email us here directly or into the studio. Or we had one walk-in question already today. That doesn't happen too often, but it did today. Let's go to the next one. All right, uh, we had a question last week. Um, this individual would like you to please explain first fruits and how this differs from tithing. Uh, what does the Bible explain, and how does this operate for merchants selling goods? Are there historical documents besides the Bible that address this? And is there a sermon or a study on how this applies to businesses in 21st century America? Well, that's a that's a great question. And I, I hate to say it, but a lot of the prosperity theologians of our day have created a an area of giving that they call first fruits in order to raise more money. And what they are doing are conflating some passages that, um, you know, they've just distorted the simple and plain reading of Scripture. God is very clear in reference to how our giving should be done. In Malachi chapter 3, which I have a whole message on this, and so you might want to go to my series on the book of Malachi, and I think you'll find a lot of helpful instruction there in terms of what tithing is, what it is not, that it does apply to today, though in the last um, 75, 80 years or so, some Christians have said it has no application for today. I believe it fully applies for today. It's the starting place. We certainly have a greater motivation than any of the Old Testament saints. But, of course, it's argued by some that the tithe was only under the law that the law has no application for today. Well, you can pick and choose, I suppose, which laws you want to embrace and which laws you don't. The scriptures are all inspired by God and they're all profitable. Certainly there are some commands that are part of God's ceremonial law that were fulfilled in Christ. Tithing is not. Tithing is part of God's eternal law. It's practiced uh, ever before God even gave the law through Moses. The The law came through Moses. John reminds us grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so with that said, the law um, dictated that you give a tenth of your increase. And the scripture also speaks of the offering, which was above and beyond the tenth. So that's a reminder to me when God says to bring 
tithes and offering into his storehouse, which today would be the local assembly, the local church. Your, your tithe does not belong to search the scriptures or focus on the family or um, WAGP, maybe an offering in those areas, but your tithe belongs to your local assembly. And again, I walk through this, I go through all the nonsense that people have come up with to say, well, the tithe wasn't 10%, but 13% or 23%. And we look carefully at those passages contextually. So again, you might want to study this. I also have a whole course on what the Bible says about money that's available to search the scriptures it's not for the faint of heart. It's 120 pages where we go through in detail what God says. Now, there are certainly Christian ministries or ministers who are appealing to not only a Christian audience, but a secular audience like Financial University, which is popular, but it's not rooted in God's word. There's just a couple of verses in the whole course. And so what's very important is that you have, <laughs> excuse me. You have your convictions built on the word of God and what God's word says rather than what man thinks or what just works. Because if you just go by what works, it certainly will not last. So let's bring this back to first fruits in the book in Leviticus chapter 27. Here it is. It says, thus all the tithe of the land of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So there's a principle that God gives, first of all, that it's all his. And Psalm 24, one says the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. And so what that makes us is simply stewards. It's not my bank account. It's not my car. It's not my house. It's not my belongings. It's all God's. And as a steward, I am to be a good steward of what he has entrusted to me. But the idea that there's a third category of giving beyond the tithe and the offering, namely what some prosperity theologians have called first fruits, is just not true. When God speaks of first fruits, for instance, in uh, Proverbs chapter 4, I've just turned there and it says, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So he's affirming that we are to prioritize God in our giving. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, we are to lay up in store, we're to set aside that which God has increased. And it may be different for for different people, uh, depending on what their increase was. Someone asked about a business. Well, again, there's a difference between gross revenue and, in what God puts in your hand as income to, to spend. If you bring in $3 million from your business, but you know your, your margins are very, very small after you pay for all your expenses, you take your total revenue and you minus out your expenses, and what God then puts in your hand as income is what you tithe off of. That's what God calls you to tithe off of. And yes, I tithe before I pay the IRS and before I pay my power bill, because that's income now that God has given to me. And so out of what God has put in my barn, I begin with the 10th. But again, it's not simply an issue of percentages. There's also the offering. It's an issue of the heart. 
And so it's argued today, well, that's legalistic and we need to teach people grace giving. Well, I believe you should teach grace giving too. Uh, Paul affirms that principle that we more than any Old Testament Jew have a greater motivation to give than any of them had for the simple reason that we have seen the fullest expression of God's grace in Jesus Christ, him that was poor be uh, him that was rich in all of the blessings of, of heaven uh, became poor. How by emptying himself uh, so that we might become rich. That's second Corinthians eight, nine, a verse taken out of context for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich yet for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And of course he's speaking here of spiritual blessings that Jesus who left the splendor of heaven and emptied himself by becoming a man and suffered uh, the ignominious death, even death on a cross so that we could become rich spiritually and be even forgiven. And Paul then uses that as a motivation for us to give, not to become rich in terms of that you're making 50,000 a year and now you're going to make a half a million a year. Forget the prosperity theologians. The only one who's making out are typically those people. Uh, no, not at all. He, he's talking about a fuller expression of grace that the Old Testament prophets long to see that we have seen fulfilled. So we still teach grace. Grace has always been the motivation to give. Even for Old Testament saints, we just have a fuller understanding of it because of all the promises that the prophets wrote of have literally been fulfilled. But, you know, it's argued, oh, if you teach grace giving, people will give more. The fact is, is the average evangelical who sits in churches that teach grace giving give less than give 3% or less. 3% or less. So it's not true. Um, The tithe belongs to the Lord. That's where you begin. It's not simply an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. It's all his. Sometimes God will put in your heart to give above and beyond the tithe. It's called an offering. But to create a third category, first fruits, that's not how it's used. First fruits is an issue of priority. First day of the week kind of giving that we don't give to God last. We give to God first. All right. Very good. Uh, We've got a couple of live callers standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm on the road. Unfortunately, I couldn't. I mean, I pulled over to call, but someone called me and asked me about the scriptures of uh, Jesus descending to preach to the spirits. And, of course, I told him that in Jude, it says that the angels that left their first estate, you know, he went and more or less told them that they they lost the war. But uh, I, I wasn't sure about what he was talking about when he was talking about preaching to the spirits uh, that had, uh, you know, that had been disobedient during the time when Noah was preparing the ark. So yeah, if, yeah, it's uh, a great Dr. question. Could... Yeah, let me see if I can respond to it. So you were like running right down the right road in your answer. Uh, I'm reading now from first Peter three for Christ also died for sins once for all the just that's him for the unjust that's us so that he might bring us to God. And then it says, having been put to death in the flesh, Jesus literally physically actually was crucified and dead, but made alive in the spirit. Please notice what it does not say. It does not say he was made 
dead in the flesh, but then made alive in the flesh. Now that is true, but that's not what this verse is teaching. He will indeed in just a moment affirm the resurrection. He will speak in verse 21 about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that the Lord is now at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So the Bible affirms the resurrection, but this verse is speaking of a preaching mission that Jesus went on between the time he died on Friday and was buried in a tomb. His body was physically there. And before his uh, body actually came out, resurrected, the first one ever to come out in a resurrected body, he went on a preaching mission. So it says, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which, in his spirit, he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So Jesus went on a preaching mission to some spirits. This word that's used for spirits is typically used, not exclusively, but almost always used of angelic beings. And of course, the context when I put this passage together with Jude, along with Genesis, it's very clear that he is speaking of angelic spirits. He went and he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who are these spirits? Well, they were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through the water. So whoever these angelic beings were, they did something uh, that is termed here as sinful as disobedient back in the days of Noah. So he's looking at a specific category of angels who are now in prison. And Peter, in his second letter, by the way, Second Peter 2 and the book of Jude are somewhat parallel chapters in that they're both dealing with apostates, with people who uh, have um, come to the edge of faith and then turned away from truth. And he reminds us in both Second Peter 2 and in the book of Jude that, of course, it's just one chapter that apostates will be judged for their wickedness. And he reminds us in Second Peter 2, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So he speaks here of some angels who are in hell. Now, wait a minute. I thought all angels are free to roam in the heavenly realm. Uh, No, not all angels are free to wage war. There are different classes of fallen angels, some that can wage war against the believer today. And so Paul reminds us that we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. That's one class of fallen angels. There are some angels who are in a place called the abyss, and they've done something horrible to the point where they are in the abyss. And of course, if you remember on that time that the Lord Jesus uh, met the two madmen from Gadara, the Gerasene demoniacs, uh, the head demon that's called Legion, 
pleaded that the Lord might not send them to into the abyss, but into those swine. And the Lord had good reason for sending them into the swine. That's a sermon in itself. And of course, when he did that, they went headlong down into the Sea of Galilee and were all drowned. We were just there last month and God willing, we'll go there again in 2019. But here's the point is that they recognized that if they had gone into the abyss, that they would not have freedom in which to wage war against God's people and to promote sin amongst the ungodly. Because we're told that these principalities and powers led by the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, is energizing, ernergo, he is empowering the sons of disobedience for evil. And so very often Satan may work on, say, one movie producer who produces an ungodly movie that will capture the hearts and minds of millions of people. With that said, uh, there's coming a time when even those angels in the abyss are going to be let out. There's one of the four named angels in the Bible, Apollon or Abaddon in uh, Hebrew and Greek, who's going to open up the abyss and millions of angels are going to come out during the tribulation period. That's a different place from the category that's described here. These are angels who are in hell, and the Greek word is Tartarus. And again, in the parallel passage, um, it says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So there is a classification of angels who are not even in the abyss. It's a different Greek word translated here, hell. It's a place called Tartarus. And they will never be let out. They are in eternal bonds for the day of judgment, when in the end, all fallen angels who are in the abyss, who are in Tartarus, who roam in the heavenly places, will ultimately find their end in the lake of fire, along with all unbelievers. For that is whom hell was created for. That's another word for hell, Gehenna. Uh, God never created hell for man. He made hell for the angels uh, who fell along with Satan. But again, when you put these passages together, there were some angels who sinned during Noah's time. Uh, We are told in Jude, they did not keep their own domain, but they abandoned their proper abode. They did something that went contrary to their nature. In fact, he makes a parallel statement in Jude 7, just as, just like Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, is the same way as these who, is the same way as these angels who lived in Noah's day did not keep their proper abode. These indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So he's reminding us that just like the people in Sodom left their natural abode, God did not create people homosexual. He created them heterosexual, period. There's no such thing as transgenderism. I hope you're listening to me, some of you, when someone comes to you, a son or a daughter, and they say, well, they're now transgender. What am I to believe? There's no such thing. Now, in their mind, there is. But listen, you can't change your sexuality. You can't be between sexes. Sex is determined not between your ears, but between your legs, the way God created you, period. Um, With that said, some of these angels, and we have a fuller explanation in the book of Genesis, the sixth chapter, in terms of what they actually did. 
Uh, there is a term in Genesis 6, I'm trying to turn there, um, where he is describing what had happened in Noah's day, which I think was part of the motivation for the great flood. It says the Nephilim, or the Nephilim, if you prefer, were on earth in those days and also afterward when the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, came into the daughters of men. Please notice what it does not say. It does not say the sons of men came into the daughters of men, but the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, that's an identical term used in the book of Job to describe evil fallen angels that would Satan came into God's presence wanting to get God's permission to wage havoc on Job. Remember the devil is God's devil and the devil is limited in his power and he can only do what God allows him and gives him permission to do. And of course, Satan argued the only reason Job loves you is because you bought him. You've blessed him. Take away the blessing and we'll really see if he loves you. And God does that and Job comes out shining. And again, it's the B'nai Elohim. And so we're told here that the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those who were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. And so Satan has always tried to thwart the cross and thwart the blood lineage of man uh, because it's from a human tribe, namely Judah, from a particular family named David that the Messiah was going to come. And so Satan's trying to create a mixed bleed breed. And, and of course, angels can take on human form. And in every time they do take on human form in Scripture, they are male. There's no illustrations anywhere in the Bible, not to say it couldn't happen, but there's not a single illustration in the Bible where an angel is a woman. It's always a man. And of course, uh, they are so human that when the uh, two angels who come to Sodom and Gomorrah to rescue Lot are in his house, the men of Sodom are literally wanting to break down the doors to do what, even when they're smote with blindness, which shows how strong and perverted their lust is, they want to have relations with the two angels. Uh, angels in heaven neither marry nor are given in marriage. But and so angels don't procreate with one another. But here these angels had left their abode that God created them for, and they did something that was unnatural. They cohabitated with women, just like what they do in Sodom and what Sodomites do today is unnatural. And so those angels are in eternal bonds. And so between the death of Christ and his resurrection, there is one category of angels who had not heard of his victory. And Christ went on a preaching mission to let people know uh, in the angelic realm, angelic persons in heaven above and on earth below, and even in the Titus cavern where demons are kept called Tartarus to know that he was victorious through his cross. Very good. All right. Thank you, caller. We've got another caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Hey, Brother Brogy. Hey, good morning. Hey, Thanks I for calling. Go, quick, go ahead. Two quick questions. Um, for a person who professes to be a believer and struggle with constant fellowship in community, uh, I'd like for you to address that. I've tried to talk to a person about, you know, the passion of Hebrews 10 about forsaking not to assemble themselves 
and they always try to make excuses about, you know, not attending faithfully on the Lord's Day. And also, if you can, this looseness with drinking now among believers, um, I believe Scripture does give a little wiggle room, but I think there's very a lot of danger now in the promotion of drinking among believers. Can I just hear your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, those are those are great questions. And obviously there are Christians who are disobedient, who make excuses why they shouldn't gather with God's people on the Lord's Day. I I just met someone who brought their children to our vacation Bible school and she came to our picnic and was affirming how great the Bible school was and how organized it was and how much her kids love it. And I said, well, do you go to church anywhere? And she said, no, I, I live stream you every week. And of course, uh, that's not a good thing. The live stream is for people in other states and other countries or um, people who are sick and unable to come to church. That's what it's for. It's granted, we have people in other time zones that live stream us on Sunday. We have people in other states, some who are on our time zone, and they live stream the first service, and then they attend a church at 11 o'clock in their own hometown. There's never a substitute for gathering together physically with the brethren, even in our live stream campuses. And the reason we even have them is because there's such a deficit of Bible teachers today who will open the word of God and teach God's word. And we are living in a day of great famine, but listen, people often leave community Bible church. Uh, we lose a couple hundred Marines every year and often they'll say, well, you know, I'm in such and such a town. I just can't seem to find a church where the pastor is actually opening the Bible. You know, there's all kinds of, you know, gymnastics that are going on and music and drama and feel good sermons, but not someone opening the Bible. I said, well, first of all, make sure the pastor has the gospel. Make sure that he believes in the absolute infallibility of the entire word of God. Start there. And assuming that he does, that might be a possibility, even if it's not a healthy church, even if he's been deceived through the seeker sensitive movement, thinking that that's the way that a church is to do church. And it's not. Uh, What we've adopted has been very detrimental to the body of Christ. With that said, you find the best church that you can. And this brother, you know, referenced Hebrews chapter 10. And of course, God couldn't have said it any plainer. He said, and let us consider how to stimulate one another. Who's the one another? Fellow believers to love and good deeds. How do you do that? Well, negatively, not forsaking our own assembling together as had become the habit of some people. God says, don't forsake your gathering together. And God mandated the first day of the week. You might not be able to come to some midweek Bible study or prayer meeting, but on the first day of the week, you are to set that day aside and you are to prioritize that day. You're not to forsake your assembling together. And if you are, just call it what God calls it, sin. That's what it is. It's sin. But positively, we're to encourage one another. That's not something you can do when you're at home or you don't come to church at all. Even if you're live streaming and that's all you're doing, you can't be obeying God, not just in this command, but in many other commands that are done when we are corporately together. For instance, you have a spiritual gift. 
and someday at the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Romans 14, 12. Each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. There's coming a day when God is going to evaluate the service of every believer. And if we're not employing our spiritual gift, different from a talent that maybe you were given when God gave you physical life, some people have a talent of being a great athlete. Other people, they're mechanically inclined and different ways that God creates people because we need every person and every contribution that they make. The same is true in the body of Christ. When God gave you a second birth on your spiritual birthday, not only did he put the Holy Spirit in you, he gifted you. And as you begin to grow and for growth to take place, you must be hearing God's word. That's what a pastor is supposed to do. He's supposed to preach the word. He's supposed to feed the flock. And when you obey what you know, you grow. And when you grow, then your spiritual gift begins to manifest itself. You know, when you hold a newborn baby, you don't know, is this person going to be a great runner or a great mathematician or a doctor? Or, you know, are they going to be a landscaper? You, you don't know until they begin to grow. And then their talents and abilities and desires and proclivities begin to manifest themselves. Same is true with a brand new Christian. He's a babe in Christ. And it's not until he grows, which is something he cannot do in the fullest sense, apart from a local assembly, just as a newborn baby is brought into a home where he's cared for and loved and fed and nurtured. When we're born again, God's design is we are brought into a church home where a pastor opens the word of God and we are learned, we learn and we grow and we're fed and, and we serve. And as you do that, you grow. So your friend who never comes at the judgment seat of Christ, assuming he's a Christian, he's going to be at a great loss. He's going to suffer loss. First Corinthians three teaches because he disobeyed God. There's no way he can obey the commandment of Hebrews three thirteen. Hebrews three thirteen assumes that you do not have a casual relationship to a body of believers. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. Why? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look, if you spend 99% of yourself of your time with an unbelieving world and 1% with Christians, I can tell you who's going to have the greater impact in your life. It's going to be an unbelieving world. So God expects us. Now, it might be that your friend has a whole nother problem, and it is that he has a false assurance of salvation. At the end of 1 John, when John says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life, what things have you written, John, by which I can know I have eternal life. See, what John is doing in his first letter that is often overlooked, because by application, we often tell people, well, you don't have to hope or wonder, but you can know that you have eternal life. And that's true. Um, but with that said, uh, the scripture also gives some evidences by which we can know that we genuinely have the real birth. Paul will say to some of the Corinthians, test yourself to see if you be in the faith. Peter will say, make sure your election and calling is certain. In other words, make sure that you're not just a Christian in name only. Yeah, I'm one of those born again ones. I believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. I've got my name written in the Lamb's book of life but we give no evidences of a changed heart. 
If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. His old life has passed away and all things have become new. And so one of the things that I've written to you so you can know that you have eternal life, by this we know we've passed out of death into life and that we love the brethren. So you say to your friend, look, you never go to church. Therefore, you cannot consistently love the brethren as John is teaching to a local assembly of believers. So do you, are you showing evidence in this realm that you've even been born again? Or are you going to be a part of that great multitude of people who really think they are saved? And Jesus is going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Not I once knew you, but I never knew you. I, you never had a relationship with me. For that's the essence of eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Christ whom you have sent. If you love Christ, you'll love what Christ loves. And Christ loves the church. And if you don't love the local assembly, how can you say you're really loving Christ? And it might be that we're trying to get this friend of ours to do something that's not in his heart to do. And it's not in his heart to do for the simple reason that he's never been born again. Look, you have a natural affinity for the people in your family because you're flesh and blood. Well, there'll be a spiritual affinity for your brothers and sisters in the Lord if you've been born again. And if that spiritual affinity is not there, then a person should really take a hard look because they may be in for an eternal shock someday. So out of love, you just say, look, my, my bigger concern for you is, is do you really know Christ is your savior? You won't give an account to me, but here's what the scripture says. So take them through some of the passages. And if you didn't get them all, this is always posted later, the Bible line at WAGP.net. And you can go back and, and listen to the answer in reference to the second half of your question on drinking. Yes. Alcohol has become a huge problem in our day. And it's very popular today to say, Hey, it's okay to drink. And, and this and that. We know for sure that drunkenness is condemned in Scripture. We also know for certain that the use of strong drink is condemned in Scripture, with the exception of giving it to a dying and despairing man. God says, don't use strong drink. So what's strong drink? It's not the distilled alcohols that come almost a thousand years after the Bible is written, but it was naturally fermented wine. Now, here's the challenge, the word wine Oinos or Yayin in Hebrew can refer to what's just been squeezed out of the grape. They call that wine, but also what that which is fully fermented can also be called wine or it can be called strong drink. And so they would mix it with water. What might be really helpful to you? Because you see, we've made it so gray in our day and it's not nearly as gray as people think. Certainly, you don't want to cause a brother to stumble. That's enough reason not to drink today. Certainly, you don't want to do something that wouldn't glorify God. And who wants to support a wicked industry um, that is bent on destroying young people's lives with a profit motive in order to accomplish? I don't want to give one dime to Ann Wise or Bush or anybody else. But we've made it too gray. So go to searchthescriptures.org. Click on wine drinking in the New Testament. And there's a tremendous article that appeared in 1973 in Christianity Today that they would never print today. But it appeared in the 70s. And I think it would be very useful to you in responding to this person's questions. Well, another hour is gone and we're out of time. We didn't get to all the questions, but 
God willing, in our next meeting together, we'll have that opportunity. I hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.